Well, I want to ask you a question as we start, and it's this. What makes a Christian unique? What makes a Christian unique? The definition of unique is only one of its kind, unlike anything else. So how is the Christian, how is the church at large, how is Phoenix Bible Church unique, unlike anything else? How do we relate to one another differently? What kind of disposition do we have that sets us apart from any other group, any other person? As we finish the book of 1 Thessalonians, that's what we're going to look at. We've spent eight weeks digging into this book, and what we've seen is this, that God's love grabs a group of people, and it never lets go. And it changes them, right? It changes their position. It changes their community. It changes their disposition, what we're going to see this morning. And so as we think about God's love grabbing us, if that has happened to you, so if you're at a place today where you say, I know Jesus, then you need to know that should grab you and never let go. That that should radically change you today and in the end. That it should make you unique. The way you interact with people, the disposition that you walk with, it should all be different. You should be set apart. And so today we want to talk about what does that look like? Like what does that look like in your life, real life, at your school? What does that look like in your life, real life, at your job? What does that look like at home with your spouse and your kids? What does this actually look like to be unique? That's what we're going to dig into as we close out this book of 1 Thessalonians. So grab a Bible. Uh, if you don't have one, you can look on the screen with us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And we'll start in verse 12. It says this. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the fainthearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See to it that no one repays anyone evil for evil, But always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So just looking at those few verses, Paul is giving this final charge at the end of the book, and he's bringing it back to relationships. And what I want you to see is this. He basically gives them two simple instructions in these three verses. It's to honor and to help. So he says to honor those above you, to help those next to you. So first, honor. Verses 12 and 13. He says respect, esteem, who? Those who labor. Why? Because of their work. Verses 12 and 13. Paul is describing a culture of honor. Remember, this is a new church with new believers. Like, to the best of our knowledge, they don't have a a put-together structure yet. To the best of our knowledge, they don't have elders yet. They may not have a place to gather weekly to worship yet. And Paul is saying, as you shape all that, here's what matters. Respect, esteem, honor. And what's interesting is this. He doesn't say to honor position. He says to honor people. Do you see that? He says to honor service, not status. Nowhere in here does he say, honor the elder among you. Honor this person because he has this title or status. He doesn't say that. He says, honor these people. He describes them. They labor among you. So they're over you, but they labor among you. 
So it's not about position, it's about people, it's not about status, it's about service. It's a unique community, right? That's different than anything else. It's a unique community where it's not dominated by titles and statuses, but it's dominated by selfless service to Christ. You see that? It's a unique community. It's different. Notice in verse 12, specifically, he says, those are who are among you. So they're over you, but they're also among you. So as you look at the landscape of church, of Christians, you need to know that any pastor, myself included, any small group leader, any mentor, any service team leader, any leader of any sort, that they may be over you in some respect, but they should also be with you, right? Like you should see them modeling what you see in Scripture. You should see them modeling what they're calling you to. They should be over you, yes, but they should also be with you, and those are the kind of people that you honor, respect, esteem. Not because of a title, but because how they labor among you. It's a culture of honor. It's a unique community. And then in verse 14, look at verse 14. Paul addresses them as brothers. So he's saying they're like a family who helps one another. Um, he says brothers a couple times. He says it several times throughout this book. You see this idea of family. Scott mentioned that as well. Uh, it's interesting. There's an article in the New York Times. Um, what was interesting about the article is that most articles that are coming out now are saying things like the digital age is hurting our relationships. Like through studies and just through looking at it and statistics that you can see that it, all of us are on our phone, right? All of us have this broad social network. We all have a lot of friends, but we really have no friends, right? And most articles work towards that end. Article just a few months ago in the New York Times was the exact opposite. It said, in fact, online, you can choose to opt in. Friend, follow, favorite. Any person that piques your interest. You can choose to opt in to these relationships. And it talked about how much that dynamic actually helps your relationships. That actually, that you get to know people all over the globe. That people who have similar interests than you, or to you, people that have similar viewpoints as you, and that all you have to do is click a button. And you can find 20 people like that. You can find 200 people like that. You can find 2,000 people like that. And you can engage with them over blog comments. You can follow them on Twitter. You can have FaceTime uh, appointments with them. And you can have relationships. And so actually, the digital age has actually helped our relationships. That's different, right? But this is what she was saying in this article, that you can opt in with a click of a button. But here's the thing that you need to know, is that you can also opt out just as quickly. And you need to know, as we look at our societies, we look at our cultures, we look at relationships in a unique community, that Paul is painting a much greater picture than that. Right? Like we're not against online. You can have friends online. It's great. But if that's all you have, or even in, in real life, all you have is surface-level friendships or community or relationships where you're not known, where you know other people, you need to know that Paul is going to paint a greater picture than that. He does it in verses 14 and 15. Look at those verses. He's describing a unique community where you urge one another. You admonish one another. You encourage one another. You're patient with one another. 
with, with one another. You help one another. Listen, this only happens when there is a one another, right? Like you have to start there. Like how do you know how to encourage, admonish, and challenge someone else? Because you know where they're stuck, right? How do you know how to encourage the faint-hearted? Because you're intimately aware of where they're lacking courage. And you know how to encourage them when they desperately need it. How do you walk with others and be patient with others, specifically others who are different than you? How do you help the weak? Because you know where they're weak. And so how do you walk out a culture, a community that's unique, where you're urging one another, admonishing one another, encouraging patient help with one another? You have a one another, right? Like you start there. Like it doesn't happen because you've opted into something that piques your interest. You need to know that. And so if you treat not only online relationships like that, but people around you like that, this picture that Paul is painting, this picture that God is inviting you into that's a unique community, you won't experience that. Because you can't just opt in and opt out. Because what we experience as Christians, what makes us unique is that we're committed to one another because Christ has committed to you, because you're in the family of God. Listen, you don't just share a last name. You share a name that is above every name. That's Jesus Christ. If you know him, if other people around you know him, that's the kind of community that you're invited into. So it's not a social club where you just hang out, right, when it's convenient for you. It's not that. It's more than that. It's not a mall where you shop and figure out what works best for your interest. Right? It's not a place you go to punch a ticket and see a performance and be entertained. That's not the church. That's not the unique community that God has called us to. He's called us to more than that. So my question to you this morning would be, are you experiencing that? Are you experiencing that? Are you being urged by one another? Do you have a one another? Do people know you? Are you committed to them and they're committed to you? Not because you have everything in common, but because you have the most important thing in common, and that's Jesus Christ, that you share his name, that you're united in him. And so the idea of hopping from church to church or calling it shopping, that's a mall that's not the church, right? The idea of coming to a church or coming within a community and leaving and evaluating that and weighing that according to our likes and dislikes, that that's not what Paul is describing. That he's talking about a one another. We help one another. We know one another. We know how to encourage the faint-hearted. But because we know, here's where they're lacking courage. Are you experiencing that? Or are you just opting in and out for whatever piques your interest at the time? Where are you at this morning? What I would say is, one of the most beautiful gifts God has given us is one another. It's one of the most beautiful things God has given us. It's not always going to be convenient. It's going to be messy. But it's always going to be worth it. And that's what Paul is describing. That's what he's inviting us into. Listen, if we get this as a church, anything's possible. If we get this as a church, anything's possible. If we don't get this, nothing is possible. We can have all the dreams and visions of what God could do in and through this church, but if we don't get this, 
It's all off the radar. It's all off the map. And so it's one we talk about all the time, building a culture of family, about fostering intentional relationships through community groups, men's and women's studies. It's why we want you in one of those. That's why we talk about building a culture of family and taking intentional steps to do that. It's why we invite you into that. It's why we say we're glad you're here and we miss you when you're gone. Because there's a family building that resembles what we see in this passage. It's a community around a cause. It's a partnership around a person. That's what God invites you into this morning. So earlier, uh, a couple months ago, um, one of our community groups had to cancel their group. They had a location change and they were having problems landing in one spot. And one of the guys um, came to me the next week and he just said, hey man, we had to cancel our group. And I said, I know. Um, And he said, yeah, I'm so frustrated. Like, I need that every week. We can't cancel. Like, if I don't lock arms with people, if I don't get together with other Christians, if I don't have people who urge me, if I'm not encouraging other people, that I get off the rails, that I need that every week. And so as a church, we want to be proactive about building that kind of culture. The next thing we see in the passage is that we should have a unique disposition. So we have unique community. We should have unique disposition. It says this. It says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God and Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. So looking at that passage, before we get to what Paul says to do, notice when he says to do it. Look at the verses. Verses 16 through 18, he says, always, without ceasing, in every circumstance. What Paul is describing is a disposition that Christians should walk consistently in joy, prayer, and thankfulness. Verse 18, he says, it's the will of God and Christ for you. And you say, well, that's, that's hard, right? That's hard, like nobody does that. That's why it's unique, right? That's why it's specifically for the Christian, that you should have this type of community and you should have this type of disposition. And a lot of us, if we're honest, we would say, I don't know if I have that, right? Like some of you wake up in the morning and you're not joyful, you're dreadful, right? Until you have your coffee. And then it gets a little bit better, right? Some of you, if you're honest, you think about praying in all circumstances, and you think, man, I don't want to pray before a meal because it's kind of awkward, right? You think about praying with your spouse, and you wonder, like, it always seems so hard to pray with my spouse, right? Like, I can get up in front of other people and pray. I can pray at my community group. But when I pray with my spouse, like, that's all circumstances, it feels a little awkward. Some of us, if we're honest, our gratefulness is drowned out by bitterness. Some of you are thinking right now, like, I don't have this disposition. This doesn't describe my life. It's why Paul says in verse 21, you need to hold fast to what is good. As he lays this out before you, that you need to be rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, giving thanks in all circumstances, that this is God's will for you, that just a couple verses later, he says, test everything and hold fast to what is good. That this is something we have to fight for. So if you don't have it, you need to know you have to fight for this. That we have to hold fast to what is good. So I have a three-month-old baby. 
And somehow, with her little bitty tiny hands, she is really strong, all right? And so she'll grab stuff. So she'll grab my headphones, and she'll grab my wife's bracelet. She just did this yesterday. And at first, it's like, oh, that's so cute. Like, she's grabbing the bracelet. She's trying to eat it. And then my wife will kind of try to grab the bracelet back from her, and she's like, I can't, I, I can't get it back from her. Like, she's really strong. She has this ninja grip with these little tiny hands, and she doesn't let go. She's thinking, I'm three months old. Like, I don't have a lot. Don't take this from me. Like, I need my headphones. I need my bracelet. And she has this ninja grip. She's holding fast. What Paul is saying, you hold fast to what is good. You cling to it. You don't let go. It's like it's all you have, right? That's what Paul is describing there. And so I would ask, if you don't have this disposition, like if you think about joy, prayerfulness, and a thankful heart, and you think, I don't have that disposition. I don't have that all the time, for sure. I would ask, are you holding fast to what is good? Are you clinging to it desperately, like it's all that you have? If you're not, odds are you're clinging to some other things, right? Odds are, if you're not, you're holding fast to some other things, right? We hold fast to all kinds of things. What people say about us, what we say about ourselves, what the enemy says about you, and you may not even realize it, but you have a ninja grip on these things. Right? You have a, a tight grip. You're holding fast to all of these things, and you've forgotten what God says about you. You've forgotten God's good word, and you're not holding fast to that. And instead of joy, prayer, and thankfulness, your life is defined by insecurity, pride, and bitterness. Right? You think about your life. How many times in your life are you robbed of joy? Let me just look at your last week. Like, how many times did you wake up in the morning and you just, you just had a sluggish feeling? And it wasn't just because you hadn't had your coffee, right? It wasn't just because you didn't get some sleep last night. That you wake up in the morning, you think about your job and family, you think about your friends, you think about conflict that's in your life, responsibilities that you have, and there's not much joy there. You're not ready to go after that day. And you're robbed of joy. How many times do you not pray with your spouse? You not pray with a friend. You think, I could pray. We could pray right here. But no, it could be awkward. So I'm just going to gossip, right? Because that's a little bit easier. In our head, we'll tell ourselves lies of like, there'll be freedom and power in that. Prayer, I don't really know if that works. But gossip, I at least feel freedom and power in that. And instead of finding any sort of fulfillment through prayer and, and going to God with our need, all we find is an empty coping mechanism rooted in pride. And we talk to ourselves, right? How many times do you find yourself drifting towards bitterness instead of thankfulness? You start to question God. You say, maybe he's not for me after all. I mean, it kind of feels like he's out to get me. Maybe I should just isolate. My Christian friends, they would never understand anyway what I'm going through. And so I'm just going to move over here, and seeds of bitterness are planted in your heart. Listen, you need to know if you consistently find yourself in a place of bitterness, that that's not from God, that's from the enemy. That Jesus says it's like a thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Do you know the best thief? It's the one who takes from you without you even knowing it, right? That's the best thief. 
And so it may not seem like a big deal, but week after week, doubts in your head, doubts about God, doubts about your local community that should be unique, but you don't feel like it is, and you start to question, should I even go to these people? Should I be with these people? That those doubts in your head, in your heart, that slowly don't seem like a big deal, but over time, they're stealing a thankful heart from you, and they're replacing it with bitterness. Do you see that in your life? We need to be aware of these times because the reality is you can hold fast to a lot of things. We need to hold fast to what is good. And so in my life, do you know when things go haywire for me? Saturday, all right? I'm a pastor, and so Sunday is kind of an important day for me. And whenever things go haywire, it's on Saturday, maybe Friday night, but usually Saturday, right? Like that's when everything goes wrong with the church. That's when There's always something crazy that happens to someone in our church or someone in my family. Somebody gets sick. Somebody calls me with with something that's serious going on in her life. And listen, that's, that's part of it. But it's just, it always happens on Saturday. Like things are always crazy at ASU Prep. Like our stores got moved around. And I always find out about it on Saturday. Like do you ever wonder why that happens? And it doesn't just happen to me as a pastor. Do you ever wonder why on Saturday night you start thinking, like, I'm kind of tired. Maybe we shouldn't go to church tomorrow. Do you ever wonder why you're walking up to church on Sunday morning and you think, like, they, I, don't, I don't know if they like me. Why is that person doing this and I'm not doing that? Like, these, poly, these people are probably going to try to talk to me and be really nice to me. I don't have time for that, right? I'm just here to go through the motions. Do you ever wonder why you have those feelings on Saturday and Sunday? Because we have an enemy that wants to steal, kill, and destroy. And listen, I'm not saying that every time you get a flat tire, that's on Satan. It could be, right? But I don't think it is. But I do think there's a lot of times where over time, seeds of doubt on Saturday, on Monday, on Wednesday, and over and over, week to week to week. And you think, should I go to church? Ah, I don't know. It'd be easier to sleep in. Should I connect with these people in this community group? Uh, I, don't, I don't even know what that would look like. I don't know where they live, right? Should I reconcile with this guy that I've had conflict with? No, because that could be really awkward. Do you ever think that there might be an enemy that's speaking lies to you, and instead of holding fast to what is good, You're holding fast to those lies of the enemy. And over time, they're stealing your thankful heart. Listen, this morning, if you find yourself in a place of bitterness, in relationships, in your disposition, that you don't have that kind of joy, prayer, and thankful heart, I don't want to scare you, but you need to know that there's an enemy that wants to rob you. He wants to take that from you. And so don't think, well, that must be God, that must be guilt, that must be shame. It's not God. God doesn't breed seeds of doubt and bitterness, right? God breeds seeds of joy, prayer, and thankfulness, that that's the disposition that should make you unique as a Christian. So all those other things are lies. So the things that people say about you, the things you say about yourself, the things the enemy says about you, don't hold fast to to that. Paul says it, abstain from every form of evil. Hold fast 
to what is good. And so I've told uh, this story, or at least about this guy before in my life. When I was in college, there was a guy in his 70s, and his name was Gail Wyatt. And um, he taught like a Bible study for us, and I just uh, really enjoyed it. And so I went up to him afterwards, and I was like, hey, can we just meet and talk about the Bible more, just like you just did uh, today? And he was like, absolutely. You want to do it once a week? And I was like, well, that was a little more than I was looking for. But uh, okay. Uh, and he's like, how about this? I'm going to buy you a box of books. Um, and I want you to start reading these books. Like one is a really good Bible, a study Bible that you need to have. And then the rest of them are just really good books that have been influential in my life over my life. And I want to buy you this box of books. And so he did. And it was really heavy. Right? There was a lot of books, and, I, and so I just started reading these books with him, reading scripture with Gail, and we would meet up once a week to do this. And he's one of those guys that just always had that joyful disposition, right? He always had, he always had a thankful heart, right? And it just seemed like, man, I need to soak this up from this guy because he always has this. Like we would come over to his house, my wife and I, when we got married, and he would always have pie, Right? And he would always say, won't you have some pie? And we would say, Gail, no, man, we're full. We just had dinner and dessert, right? We don't need pie. And he said, but won't you just have some pie? And he wouldn't stop till we had some pie, right? He just always had this joyful disposition about him. And so I remember I was meeting with him for about six months. And I just asked him, Gail, like, you're... 70 plus, like, how, how have you had this joyful disposition for this long in your life? Like, how is it still sustaining you? How is this real in your life? Because I've seen it every week. How is this real? And I remember he said to me, he said, joy doesn't just happen. He said, I take hold of it. He said, joy doesn't just happen. I take hold of it. It's 70 plus years old that every day I sit in my chair, and he would, right? He would sit in the same chair in the same recliner, and he would kick it back, and he would grab his paper, and he would grab the Bible. And he would read it, and he would dig into it, and he would hold fast to what is good. That even for somebody like that, that it just seemed like it came natural, that he was fighting for it, that he was clinging to it with a ninja grip, like it was the only thing he had, right? So how do you have this disposition? You intentionally let go of every other voice that's speaking lies in your head, and you hold fast to what is good. You cling to it desperately, right? That's why you need to go to Scripture. And listen, not just read your Bible and pray. You need to dig into Scripture. You need to load your mind with thoughts of God. Like you need to memorize it. Not just when it's convenient, but you need to plan it out. You need to have a chair, right? You need to have a place where you kick back. You sit down, it's quiet for just a few minutes where you dig into God's word and you hold fast to him because if you don't, you're going to hold fast to other things. And you're not going to walk with this kind of disposition, right? If you're 20, 50, or 70, you hold fast to what is good. You cling to scripture. You think about your weak you think about a way to find community, right? So like, you don't just say like, I'll join a community, groups, uh, community group when life calms down. Because life won't calm down, 
right? You do it now. You say, it's that important. Like, there's so many other voices. There's so many other things I'm holding fast to. We need to hold fast to this, so we got to go. That you plan out your Saturday and Sunday, and you think, man, there's going to be some battles. Our car's going to break down. Oil's going to spill out. I'm going to get a flat tire. Somebody's going to call. It's going to be busy. But listen, we're going to make it a point to go to church. Not because we're going to be legalistic. Not because I get a gold star at the end. Right? But because when the body of Christ gathers, we get to meet with God, depend on him, and see him move in a mighty way. And you hold fast to that. You don't do it flippantly. Because there's other voices speaking. There's other words. You need to hold fast to God's good word. How can we do that as a church family? How can we have a unique community and also a unique disposition? The next thing we see is, is how that happens. Um, we have a unique God. Verse 23, look at the verse. It says this, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 24, He who calls you is faithful, that he will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So we serve a unique God who is faithful. The text says he will sanctify. He will keep you blameless until the end. That he will do it. So how do you experience unique community full of honor, help, partnership? You can't. How do you experience this unique disposition where you walk with joy, prayer, and thankfulness? You can't. Right, be encouraged, right? Listen, all God is asking from you is all that you can't give, right? All God is asking for you to do, all he's asking for you to do is what you cannot do. Do you ever feel that way? Do you feel that way this morning? Do you feel like even as we talk about this passage, like I'm failing in this community thing? It's not unique for me. I'm not experiencing this urging, encouraging, patience, help with one another. I'm not honoring other people. And you just feel like, God, why would you call me to that if I can't do it? You look at this disposition of this joy, prayer, and thankfulness. God, are you just trying to frustrate me? Like, are you just pulling strings up there and like seeing like how I, how I roll, like how I can do this? Some of us, if we're honest, feel that way. There's too much. I can't do this. You need to know that it's in those moments that God is leading you to a place. Right? God is shaping your heart. He's molding you to come to grips with the reality that you can't, but he can. On every level that this text tells us he will surely do it. He who calls you to do these things is faithful. He will surely do it. So in a culture, in a society where everyone lets you down, God does not. So as you look at your life and you're reminded of these dispositions that you don't have, this community you don't have, that as you look to God, as you focus on him, as you ask him that he's faithful and that he does it through 
looking at Scripture, through the community of faith that you have, through church, through your groups, through holding fast, he does it, that he's faithful, that he'll keep you blameless in the end, that he'll sanctify you in all of these ways that you can't do on your own. And so every time in my life where I feel the weight of this, right? where I feel the weight of this kind of unique community, just as a person, not a pastor, I just feel I want to have this kind of unique community that God describes. That just as a person, just as a, a father, as a husband, as a friend, I want to have this kind of unique disposition where I have a joy, where I am prayerful, where I have a thankful heart, is I feel the weight of all that and think, I can't do that. That seems impossible. I, I look to Jesus and I remember, God's faithful. How do I know? He sent Jesus. I can look to him. He can empower me, encourage me in ways that I don't even realize. That if I really look at it, I'm looking to all these other things. I'm holding fast to them. And I, I've forgotten to hold fast to God. That it's become numb. That going to church is just something I do. That reading my Bible is just going through the motions. And I forget to hold fast. And I forget that God is faithful. I forget that he will do it. Do you forget that? If you're not experiencing this disposition, if you're not experiencing this community, do you forget that God will do it? That's why Paul ends all this. He ends this book. He says, pray. He says, read this letter. I love this. He says, I put you under oath to read this letter. <laughs> like imagine if I just left you today and just said, I put you under oath. You need to read this book, right? Maybe we'll try that. See if you keep your oath. But he ends it with that, and then he says this, and it's not just a, a symbolic end. It's not just something nice to say. It's not a trite statement. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. He ends with grace because it's all grace. Unique community, unique disposition. It's all by the grace of a unique God, that he will do it, that he's faithful, that he's done it in my life. I know he's done it at times in your life. And that he will do it again, and he'll do it today, but he'll also do it in the end. So if we, as we've looked at this book over eight weeks, we've talked about what matters in the end. Acts 17, it's the backdrop of 1 Thessalonians. You should go back and read it if you never did. I put you under oath. Right? Go back and read Acts 17. That's how 1 Thessalonians gets started. That's how the church at Thessalonica gets started, that Paul and Silas and Timothy are proclaiming Jesus as king, and some people believe. Right? And it says in Acts 17, I think it's now one of my favorite verses in Scripture. It says about them, it's a quote, it says about Paul, Silas, and Timothy, hey, these are the guys that are turning the world upside down. It says that in Acts 17. You see that play out in the pages of 1 Thessalonians, of this community that's unique, that has a unique disposition that they proclaim Jesus as king, and they're turning the world upside down. We don't know how many people they had. Right? Early on, I can't imagine they had a lot. We don't know what kind of church structure they had. I'm pretty sure they didn't have the fog machine yet. Like, I'm pretty sure the light show was on the way. UPS ground, right? It hadn't made it there yet. And so Paul is saying, as you're building the plane, as you fly it, as you're shaping all of that, 
You have this unique community, this unique disposition. How? You turn the world upside down? How? How do they do that? How do we do that? It's how he ends. That there's a unique God who is faithful and that his grace is with you. And it's with you in a very specific way. It's with you in a person. The person of Jesus Christ. The person you share a name with if you know him. That he lived a life that you could never live. That he died a death that you deserved. That he rose again. That he's coming again to make all things right. To make all things new. That we have a unique God that's a God of grace who sent his only son, Jesus. And we band together because of him. So this last verse isn't just a trite statement. It's not just a signing off. The grace of Christ be with you. Listen, that's how they turned the world upside down. Because the grace of Christ captivated them. Because the grace of Christ compelled them to have this kind of community, to have this kind of disposition that he would do it through them. And maybe they didn't have all these other things, but they had the grace of Christ. May it be the same for us. Like, may it be the same for you. May this not be just something trite that we talk about. But may today be the day where we, it begins to take shape in our lives. That we don't see community as something about a title, about a status. We see it as service. That we don't see a disposition as joy, thankful, and prayerful as intimidating and things we can never achieve. No, we realize God has already achieved it for us in Christ and that his grace captivates us. It compels us to live like this, that we would be unique. We need to look to Jesus for that. Let's do that now as we pray. Father, thank you.